Buffalo girls, can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo girls, can't you come out tonight? And dance by the light of the moon. Oh, hot dog, just like an organ. Hello and welcome to Filmcast Pod Scene. My name is Ben Delgado. I am the programming director at Film Scene in Iowa City. And I'm Nathan Platt. I teach music and film history at the University of Iowa. And I'm really excited that the holiday season is upon us. It is indeed. And uh, welcome back to all of our loyal listeners. We've been gone for a little bit here, uh, but we're back now. For anyone who's new to the podcast, welcome to Filmcast Pod Scene. Um, this week we have a very special episode, a um, single film focus on It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, and for this conversation, we are so excited to have with us Mary Owen, whose mother, Donna Reed, stars in the film. Mary will be at Film Scene on December 17th, 18th, and 21st to introduce It's a Wonderful Life. It's uh, playing as part of our holiday classic series, and we have plenty of films in that series, and before we get into the meat of the show, I'm just going to briefly mention them so everyone's aware of what we have coming up at Film Scene. For the first time, I think maybe ever, we're showing uh, A Nightmare Before Christmas, so that one should be fun. I think there's a debate as to whether or not that's a more of a Halloween film than it is a Christmas film, but I think that it counts as both. And uh, we've got a new tradition now with uh, not only It's a Wonderful Life, but with Die Hard. This is our second year in a row playing Die Hard, which again is another much debated, is this the Christmas film at all? Uh, I think there's not really much of a debate there. I think it's pretty clearly a Christmas film. Definitely, yes. And uh, one that I has, think has no debate in terms of whether or not it's a Christmas film, Home Alone, will be playing this year. And two kind of more uh, lesser known films uh, in the holiday Christmas genre are Fanny and Alexander, the Ingmar Bergman film, which uh, we were going with the theatrical cut here. Uh, we debated long and hard if we were going to be able to show uh, the full television cut, which is uh, five and a half hours long, but it's <laughs> we decided that we would go with something a little bit more manageable at, at a three-hour runtime for Fanny and Alexander. So we'll have that a couple times in the series. There you go. So you can watch it and get your Christmas shopping done. Still still doable. You can still fit it in. And uh, you can say you've seen Fanny and Alexander <laughs> celebrating its 40th anniversary because the TV series version is actually... 83 mm. which would make it not a 40th anniversary so you know it's got a little bit of that going for it there we go um and throwing in uh an anime pick which is one of my personal favorites here in the lineup tokyo godfathers from director satoshi kon who only had four films sadly died young in his 50s um, but this one uh playing in the series uh and was a remake, sort of a loose remake of Three Godfathers, the John Ford film, which was a story that I believe was an Irish folktale story uh, from the early 1900s that was made into a film before that. So there's a lot of history behind this Christmas Eve set film. If you haven't seen Tokyo Godfathers, I highly recommend seeing it on the big screen. Well, hello. Hello. You look at me as if you didn't know me. Well, I don't. You pass me on the street almost every day. 
1943, Philip Van Doren Stern self-published a short story called The Greatest Gift, in which a very unhappy man is visited by a stranger. The stranger magically reveals to the man what the world would be like if he were not a part of it. And the revelation revives the man's desire to live. The story was picked up by Hollywood and expanded into the 1947 film It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra. Jimmy Stewart stars as George Bailey, a man who dreams of leaving a small hometown until a problem at work brings him to a crisis point. Donna Reed, born and raised in Denison, Iowa, stars as Mary, whose reunion with George at a dance changes both their lives. Now, we're going to share our conversation with Donna Reed's daughter, Mary Owen. We talk about our first encounters with the film, how the film affected Donna Reed's career, and how a film that performed poorly when it opened has now become a holiday classic. Along the way, we impart some musical secrets tucked into the film and revisit favorite scenes. So pour yourself some eggnog and enjoy. All right, welcome Mary to Filmcast Pod Scene. Thank you so much for joining us as our guest this week. Uh, we're very happy you could make the time to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, an, an amazing film that I only recently caught up with myself after years of not watching it uh, mistakenly. Um, but I'm sure uh, we all have our own personal stories with the film, and I thought maybe a good place to start was uh, your story with the film and how you came to see it first. Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm always excited to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, especially when it's screening in independent film theaters like Film Scene. It actually is an independent film. Uh, Frank Capra started Liberty Films after he returned from World War II, kind of tired of being in servitude to Columbia. And um, so I'm always happy uh, when the film is being showed independently because that was really his spirit. I first saw the film when I was in college. I had a good friend. You know, I had grew up during the time of my mother's television show, The Donna Reed Show. And so I didn't really know that much about her film career. And, you know, she was my mom, so she didn't really talk shop at home. She really just tried to be as much as possible a good mom. And, you know, not when she closed the door, she kind of tried to leave the business outside. But... So I hadn't really seen any of her films and it started showing in art house theaters and I was living in LA and my friend said, you have to see this movie. And it was playing at the new art and it was like a revelation. I mean, that first scene, you know, on the dance floor where she just looks so luminous and beautiful and, and I'd never seen her that young, you know, she was only 25 when she made the movie and I also wasn't sure because she was my mother and the TV show was just like her job. That's how I saw it um, to see her in like this real acting role in a film. I don't know. It just, it changed my whole feeling about her profession and her role as an actor. And just, I don't know. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. I was really glad to see it for the first time on the big screen too, and not on TV. That's a really special story. Did you see it for the first time in a theater, Ben? I did, not only in the theater, but on 35mm as well, which I'm sure that's experience for many people, but uh, considering that digital projection has been a thing for about the past 10, 15 years, I really, um, I'm kind of a Scrooge. I think I've said it before on the podcast. I'm not really a fan of Christmas. <laughs> um, and this has always been to me, seen as a, a very 
kind of traditional, staid, maybe even corny depiction of Christmas. And the only clip I'd ever really seen uh, had been of um, an angel getting its wings, you know, the bell ringing from the tree, you know. And I thought, wow, this is not for me. This is not a film that I want to see. Not <laughs> um, a schmaltzy. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. um, I was so blown away by the film when I finally uh, sat down and watched it and realized that it really does kind of get unfairly marketed. I mean, not that it's um, not a good film for families, but it's so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I first saw the movie in college and it was at a local theater. I went to school at Michigan. And so this was the Michigan Theater in downtown Ann Arbor. And they showed it as part of a holiday series. And I was so surprised. Like I loved studio era film, but I think kind of like you, Ben, I had a sort of attitude that it was going to be a very, very sort of schmaltzy affair. And not that I was not prepared to enjoy that. I just was sort of thinking it was going to go in a different direction. And I think, you know, one of the things that's just so startling about the film is even that opening scene where we're kind of, we're introduced to the characters of the film through their voices praying for the the protagonist. And I think there are so many ways that that could have, even describing that, you're probably like, oh, I don't know, this sounds pretty schmaltzy. But you don't see, it's just their voices and we're seeing this sort of aerial picture of this house with the snow falling and we're hearing people speaking he never thinks about himself god that's why he's in trouble george is a good guy give him a break god i love him dear lord watch over him tonight that was just very sort of surprising and sort of surprisingly poignant you haven't even met the character yet you don't even know what the movie's about and it's this sort of very kind of quiet but beautiful sort of opening so at any rate, I watched it and fell in love with it and was just sort of over the moon about this movie so much so that I remember running to the bus stop to catch a bus to see it like for a second time the very next day, just because it was, yeah, it just really made an impression. Well, the the opening, I mean, the movie really does engage you right away. You know, I mean, it doesn't really take a while to get into it, even just you know, all of young George Bailey's experiences and and even, you know, my mom's character, you know, him being the love of her life, it's such a, <laughs> that one line she says, it's like, oh my God, you know, so it really does kind of hook you. <laughs> I was just curious, Mary, because you've seen this movie so many times since you saw it that first time, are there things that have changed a lot for you? Or do you sort of feel differently about the film now than you did then? Or is it more of a kind of, you know, sort of returning to a really familiar experience? That is a good question. I remember when I first saw it, you know, by the by the ending of it, I really felt this resonance to like the 60s and how um, communities used to come together and help everyone, you know, in this kind of magnanimous way, um, which I, I don't feel happens too much anymore. Um, and that we've really gotten away from that. So that really struck me that a movie that was, you know, from 1946, 47 would still have that kind of feel. I saw it in the seventies. So the sixties were still kind of, you know, there. So, yeah. Um, you know, I always see something different. I, I really love, uh, the scene where George is upset and he comes in and he, you know, knocks everything off the table 
and and my mother's role has to be like she's concerned for him and then you see that shift where she realizes she has to now protect the children yeah that scene really is so strong but there's so many great scenes in the movie and so many great scenes with where she's acting without saying anything where it's just her face and in going through yeah. a range of emotions it's uh that's quite a remarkable performance that I think probably gets overlooked for the more showy performance of Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even that first scene on the dance floor, you know, it's it like you said, it's all in her eyes. My favorite part that involves her is really it's so fleeting and I don't know if it's um, scripted or not, but when they are walking home after the dance and, you know, they're they're all wet from having fallen in the swimming pool and they're singing Buffalo Gals. And it's not the first time they sing. I think it's the second time they sing it. That they're al- they're always trying to ser- sort of sing in harmony with kind of mixed, mixed results. And the second time, she cracks up just a little bit. Just like, just sort of starts to, to, to laugh. And, and it's so, it, it just seems so genuine. And again, I don't know if that's Mary laughing at George or if that's Donna laughing at Jimmy and it kind of doesn't matter, but it's just, it's so, it's so beautiful and uh, just, just feels very like the affection is just really palpable. Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? tonight can't, you come out tonight? can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Dance by the light of the moon. What do you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. Well, I love the scene where they bless the martini house. That's always very profound to me. And also, you know, Capra was an Italian immigrant and it just, I don't know. And, you know, they get in the car and my mom grabs the goat, the goat gets in the car and she grabs its horn. You know, that's just, that's a Denison, Iowa for sure. <laughs> but that scene where someone says, um, yeah, same way White was over there and she's like, oh, who cares? And that really felt like my mother too. Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. Hi, little George, he's always making a speech. Oh, who cares? Bread, that this house may never know hunger. Salt, that life may always have flavor. And wine, that joy and prosperity may reign forever. Enter the Martini Castle. It's a really nice moment, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he's got that whole sort of insecurity complex. The whole movie, you could have married Sam. You could have married Sam, and she's like, "Those aren't my values." Exactly. Do me a favor, will you, George? What's that? Will you remember my kid sister Mary? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna want you to marry me. Dance with her, will you? Oh me? Oh, I feel funny enough already with all these kids. Oh come on, be a sport. Just dance with her one time, and you'll give her the thrill of her life. Hey, sis. Quick interjection here. The first time we see Donna Reed on screen is at a dance held in a special gym with a retractable floor that pulls back to reveal a swimming pool. Yes, absolutely that little feature is a plot point. But this was not a studio set. It was the actual gym and pool of Beverly Hills High. So I just had to ask Mary. Did you go to Beverly Hills High School? I did. I did go to Beverly High School, Hills High, and I... I was on the basketball team and then I also swam in the pool. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's 
That's fantastic, because I was wondering about that as I was watching it. Obviously, you grew up in Southern California, but I didn't know which high school you'd gone yeah. to. It was a very strange... I had gone to a girls' school before that, and then I went to Beverly High for like junior and senior year. And, you know, I mean, for all the success and wealth that my parents had, you know, we still grew up pretty grounded. And then go, suddenly going to Beverly Hills High, and everyone was driving like new Mercedes and stuff. It, it was shocking, even to me. Like, I just didn't grow up that way. Well, I think that's so neat that you actually were in the in one of the spaces that's <laughs> featured in the film and featured in the film in a really major way. That that yeah. must have been sort of funny to see that when you went to see it the first time and kind of recognize that. Yeah, I know. It was strange. <laughs> yeah, definitely not Bedford Falls, but. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And also, yeah. you know, my mother grew, grew up uh, on a farm and she really didn't know how to swim. So. I think that whole scene really uh, was a little nerve wracking for her. Wow. I, that is not the kind of thing that you even consider when you're sort of, when you're yeah. watching it. I yeah. mean, I, 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 yeah, I think they, they might've used a body double for the fall because mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. it's really short. Yeah. They could yeah. have done that for both. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was really struck by um, watching it again the story is, you know, really hinges on just a few days, right? Like the day that, um, that they, that they spend at the dance and then his brother returns from college and is married. And then he goes to meet with Mary again. And they have this very fraught, complicated, and also wonderful, uh, encounter at her house. But I was just curious, cause I know Ben, you were doing like some sort of looking into like the production of the film and also like how it was adapted from this particular short story. And I was just wondering how much of that is kind of coming out of that original source or how, how much of this had to be kind of really carefully sort of structured on the writing side and then the performances. So, you know, off pod, we've, we've met and had a discussion about some things and including that, that short story. And it's actually different than the film in that there's most of the backstory isn't there. Like you, you kind of start in the, in the what if I didn't exist, I wish I was never born kind of thing. Um, so a lot of it did have to come from, well, I think there was some contention. I don't know, Mary, you might be able to speak to this a little bit uh, in the writing of the film and that it was written by a couple people and then rewritten. And in the end, it was like the credits, the credits weren't exactly what they should have been. It's kind of maybe a more interesting story than, than what I'm making it out to be. But um there's a lot there in the adaptation. Yes, you're right. And I'm sorry, I don't know the details. But yeah, I think there were several, like four or five writers, and then not all of them were credited. But yes, yeah, the greatest gift, and it's it's a wonderful story to read. But you're right, it, it really does kind of start just before the turn. But yeah, I do think there were a lot of... Uh kind of difficult relationships that happen in the film. I know, uh, Nathan, you might know a little bit more about this than I do, but the uh, composer, um, there are a couple songs that, that were written that weren't used. And I think maybe this kind of was the end of their working relationship, if I'm not mistaken. I think it is. Dimitri Tiomkin, the composer for the film, did work with Capra on a variety of projects and in some ways kind of got his big break in film music through Capra, he was working, he'd worked on a variety of projects in the 1930s, but his sort of first really big one was the Capra's 
Lost Horizon, and that kind of put him on the map in a way that he hadn't been before. And then he worked on some other films with Capra. But Capra liked to mess around with the music after it had been recorded. And obviously, if you're the composer, that that can sometimes be a little painful. And so, yeah, there is music that was written for the film that is not heard in the film. A lot of that can now be heard on a, a fairly recent album that was released, I think, to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the film. And the music that's in the film is still really, you can tell sometimes that things were sort of pushed around or there's some kinds of cuts that are a little bit um, surprising, but it's the music that's there is very effective. When George Bailey is running to the bridge after he's had this kind of nightmarish vision of what the world would be like if, if he weren't a part of it, the melody that's playing in the background is actually an or- orchestral setting of the plain chant Dies Irae from the the Requiem, the Mass for the Dead. Film composers did kind of play with that, and so that comes up in a handful of movies from the era, but it's kind of a neat insertion. And then the other thing, which just happens like a minute later, is he does return to the world. Um, and as he is running through Bedford Falls, there's this Alleluia chorus that's playing in the background. And that's not actually written by Dimitri Tiomkin. That was written for the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's the music that plays when Quasimodo swoops down to save Esmeralda from the scaffold and swoops back up to Notre Dame to declare sanctuary. And so it's this like literally life-saving moment and that's the that's the music that's playing. Um, what's interesting is there's actually a, a, a some controversy about who wrote that music. That music is we were just talking about credits. Um, that music is credited to Alfred Newman, but there's some evidence to suggest that another composer, Ernst Toch, also had some involvement in writing it. But at any rate, it's from an earlier movie, and that it pops up in this one scene in It's a Wonderful Life, and you're just kind of like, whoa, oh, okay, it's a totally different film, but it still works. It's great. <laughs> But I think my favorite musical moment is the, you know, everybody singing Old Lang Syne at the end. It's pretty, pretty hard to top that. Yeah, and by that point, if you're not already on board, I mean, I can't help you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Something's right. Something's wrong. That's right, that's right. The problem's with you, yeah.
this was uh, my mother's first real, you know, kind of starring role in a in an A film. I mean, they were expendable. Maybe counts as that too. But you know, Capra originally wanted Gene Arthur or Ginger Rogers because he didn't really know who she was. Um, but he seen her and they were expendable and he was close, you know, with John Ford. So when he went to MGM to meet my mother, um, he knew right away that she would be perfect as Mary Bailey. And Ginger Rogers would have been, an, you know, just kind of an, a strange choice, I think. Even Jean Arthur, who's great. I mean, she's fantastic in her other Capra roles. I, um, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town is like one of her, my favorite films of hers. But I, I think the point that you're just making, Mary, about this being kind of a special moment in her career, I think, and the film kind of capitalizing on that, because what she had been in kind of some some sort of more ingenue roles, like with um, Mickey Rooney in, um, what was it, Courtship of Andy Hardy, I think? Yeah. yeah. And... Um, and so this is kind of, it, it's kind of perfect because they were expendable. She's still this, you know, young single woman, but in a more sort of kind of grown up role just because of the situation that she is, you know, uh, working as a nurse in this, in, in, in this film and tending to these uh, soldiers. And then to have her in this particular film where we kind of see both, we see her sort of at the beginning of at the dance where she is kind of the role that she was, I assume playing in, in the Mickey Rooney films of, you know, young, beautiful girl. And then we see her as, as yeah, this mother and this like just really, really strong, um, strong character who has to, as you were saying earlier, manage this very difficult situation where she has to be both thinking about her husband and also thinking about her children. And so that's, that's a really incredible transition and really just a handful of scenes. Yeah, true. I mean, it, when you think about the role, yeah, she had to go from like an 18-year-old girl to, you know, a wife and mother in her 40s. And, and yeah. she got to sing. I don't think she ever sang since and dance a little. And, you know, um, so I think she she welcomed that as well. But it was just really demanding. She said Capra was incredibly demanding, but he was, you know, he wasn't, um, he was very kind about it. And at some point, um, so my, I had, there are four of us and um, the first two, my sister and my brother were adopted. And so um, Capra actually released my mother from, you know, work for like a week to go adopt my older sister, Penny, which, you know, he oh didn't have to do. I mean, yeah. she was under contract. Um, so, you know, it just shows how, you know, generous and kind he was. Yeah. That's amazing. I did. I had no idea. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah. But yeah, there was this tension on the set because, you know, Jimmy Stewart, when he went off to war, he had just won an Academy Award, I think, in 1940. Mm. And so he left at the top and then came back from, you know, being away for five years with maybe a little, you know, uneasiness from, from being in war and being away from Hollywood and not sure he wanted to continue being an actor and kind of jumping into this movie again, being so far away for so long. So even that that telephone incredible telephone kissing scene he wasn't ready to do when it was time to do it and he kept putting it off that's incredible yeah i hadn't realized i don't know how i guess i just i'd never sort of followed stewart's career that closely so i didn't know until we had were sort of talking and preparing for this conversation that he had been away from film that long. I knew that he'd served in the military, but I didn't realize it'd been like five years and that this was his first film. Yeah. 
and and Capra too. And and so he wasn't sure he had what it took to make movies anymore. And you know, started with this new film company and. And so everyone had participated in the war effort in some way. And, and so I think that was what, you know, maybe added to this incredible way the movie ended up turning out. You don't know, you know, that's just kind of uncomfortability. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, stars aligning, it seems. I mean, you really couldn't imagine anyone but Donna Reed in, in the role that she's playing here. I mean, the same way the film, speaking of uh, Jimmy Stewart's Oscar, which was for Philadelphia Story... The film was initially, at least like the the short story, I think, was given to Cary Grant or Cary Grant's agents. Yes. So, because oh. you, you think of Cary Grant in this role, <laughs> oh, wow. I don't think so. <laughs> that's not really the film for him. Not at all. No, that's that's crazy. I mean, I love Cary Grant. Um, it would have been such a different film. Yeah. I think of him in, uh, what, The Bishop's Wife, yeah. which is kind of his his Christmas mm-hmm. movie of this of this era but so, so different. <laughs> Completely different. And I won't slander the bishop's wife, but this is a much better film. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I think Cary Grant's just got too much poise. I think that's one of the things that's uh, touching and also a little unsettling about It's a Wonderful Life and what people don't know if they've only seen the smiling family picture from the end of the film is you see Jimmy Stewart like really look unstable you know with his family and that's scary and and strange yeah which reminds me we're talking about how the film goes so many different places and the storytelling and even when he gets kicked out of the the bar and he he actually looks right into the camera yeah i love that it's so unusual for that time the the box office when this film first came out, it was it was a flop. Like it didn't do well at the box office, and, and just was revived kind of with TV, um, like a few other films. I think about Wizard of Oz, but um, it's kind of amazing the the life that the film has led up to this point. Well, I think that is really true. I mean, first of all, I don't think there's any film you could even probably compare it to. And when I started introducing it at uh, in, uh, IFC in New York back in 2007. You know, there were like four people in the audience. So it's just had this incredible momentum over the years. I mean, it sells out now. I think it does well at film scene. Um, it just shows, it used to be maybe just in big cities, but all across the country. And it's a thing. I mean, people, you know, tell me afterwards, they grew up watching it with their family and they, you know, last year I brought my boyfriend and now we're married. And it, everyone has a, re- a relationship to this film. And the fact that they probably have the, you know, the DVD, that they actually choose to come to the theater and share the experience is also just fantastic. And that's, you know, that's my big love is for, you know, people to come to the theater and see it because it's so different. It's a different experience. There's just so many details and and the storytelling and, you know, it's just, it's really incredible to see it on the big screen. Well, thanks again, Mary, for joining us today uh, to talk It's a Wonderful Life. Um, We could keep going on and on about this wonderful movie and all the things that go into it and went into it and the life it's had since then. But um, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. And we're looking forward to having you at Film Scene for screenings uh, very soon. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Great to chat with you, Mary. Thanks. 
right take care everyone this was fun and that does it for another episode of filmcast pod scene a reminder that mary will be joining us at film scene on december 17th 18th and 21st to introduce it's a wonderful life it's playing as part of our holiday classic series running from december 16th through the 22nd we want to extend a special thanks to mary owen for chatting with us also, a quick shout-out to Ensemble Torculus for their recording of the Dies Irae chant. Finally, if you're looking for a smidge more holiday fair, watch Donna Reed bring joy to others in A Very Merry Christmas. That's episode 14 from season 1 of The Donna Reed Show. Happy holidays and Happy New Year. <laughs>